I'm here in plenary session, real life edition, and I'm sitting on the couch of Dr. Eric Collison. Professor Collison is a professor of medicine here at the University of California, San Francisco. He's a medical oncologist, he's a GI cancer expert, and he is also a physician scientist, runs a lab. And um, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for inviting me and, and coming over to do this. I've heard a lot of good things about you. I hear from the fellows that you're a great raconteur, and I also listened to your recent uh, talk in the Friday morning sessions, and I thought it was terrific. Maybe I'll ask you about that in a little bit. But I guess first I wanted to ask you a question just about, you know, if you could maybe explain to the listeners a little bit about how you wear the two hats of physician scientists, how you divide your time between clinic and lab, and what your lab focuses on. Yeah, happy to. I've been um, at UCSF since um, since a f since fellowship, so now over fifteen, coming on twenty years. It's a little close. And um, the I've always been uh, fascinated by science. I I was um, I like to say I took the expensive uh, full cost route to uh, being a physician scientist in that I didn't actually uh, get a, an MD-PhD in medical school. I went to UCLA and paid full full freight <laughs> rather than, than having it paid for by our government and recently completed paying off my loans, by the way. Wow, just in time for the forgiveness. <laughs> just in time, just in time. No no yeah. uh, water under that bridge. Mm. But anyway, um, so, so took a, a year off in medical school um, and got to go to the NIH with the, the Hughes program, mm -hmm. which was really transformational, and um, did a year after medical school of more research I had started uh, and just kind of never um, considered not being in the lab after that. Mm -hmm. And it was almost too late in my educational game to realize that I maybe should have gotten a PhD and done things differently. But I, I, I kept... Um, pushing forward and now have a, a uh, one clinic a week that often goes to a whole day and um, the rest of the time's in the lab. In the lab. And your lab focuses on a number of things, but uh, would it be fair to say pancreas cancer is on the top of your list? Yes, yes. So we, um, in the lab, we use, we try to intersect tumor genomics, you know, that we increasingly, we used to get from TCGA and kind of rarefied data sets, but now get from just real life patients in the clinic every day, thankfully. And, um, and then intersecting the power of mouse models to actually take rarer variants that are not kind of the canonical disease model in, in disease X or Y, and uh, use the mouse to kind of compare what uh, different uh, driver oncogenes or tumor suppressor genes do in the context of essentially isogenic animals. So all other mm -hmm. things are the same except for the oncogene, which is, as you know, not the case in patients, mm -hmm. uh, where, where different oncogenes, different mutations actually co-segregate with all sorts of different things, certainly diseases but also things like smoking history and, and age and, and other variables that make it hard to interpret does mutation X respond better than mutation Y because the drugs are more potent, because the patients are older, because the immune system's more robust? So the mouse has a the ability, at least in theory, this is how I write the grants, to clarify those questions mm -hmm. um, and ask, you know, really what is the contribution of the mutation itself versus the genome in which it occurs mm -hmm. uh, versus the host in which it occurs and, and all of those. So the lab is about um, 
half pancreas cancer and half lung cancer, actually. And the mm. reason for that is I, I love lung cancer as well. And um, earlier when I was at the VA, I got to, to see lung cancer patients. I, I've had to simplify my clinical life a little bit there. Mm. But um, the uh, that's a, a bit of an efficiency of the mouse house, where a lot of the alleles we use are common in mm. pancreas and, and lung. And a lot of the biology is, is similar, but a lot's different. So that keeps me on my toes, trying to keep up with that, uh, those two um, clinical laboratory intersections. You know, it's really interesting that you talk about those two malignancies side by side, because I think many people will think of lung cancer as sort of the hallmark disease for which we have learned of numerous oncogene addictions and maybe have eight to 10 different driver mutations for which we have drugs and maybe 20 different drugs or more. And pancreas cancer has been so elusive. And I guess aside from BRCA and, uh, and homologous recombination deficiency uh, and olaparib, uh, hasn't had the same sort of same sort of... Right. So, I mean, is there is there an explanation for that, a biological explanation? Is that still work under progress? Why, why is it that lung cancer yeah. is falling that way? Yeah, I know that that has been um, really my question since I since I got into this business is um, is is the is the discrepancy between you know the Lazarus like response of a lung cancer patient to an EGFR inhibitor. Uh, versus the recalcitrance of a pancreas cancer to really many treatments is is that just not finding the right drug or is that some important difference about a cell of origin being mm -hmm. different in the pancreas or different in the in the lung cancer and um, it has been uh, convenient to say well well we just don't have a good RAS drug yet and when we do uh, it'll all be different and, and now we actually do have right. some of those drugs, and we will see if it is different. I, I think um, my instinct is is that we're going to learn that pancreas cancers can't live without RAS the way that that, uh, that uh, EGFR-driven lung cancers can't live without EGFR, and they will um, go through all sorts of um, hoops to either repair that defect invoked by effective drugs or... Um, find ways to escape it that are off target, so to speak, or, or, you know, kind of state changes as we're referring to those. So I do not think that um, they differ, um, but my bias is, is what I told you that I do 80% of the time. It is the exact same allele, the KRAS allele, that mm -hmm. we put in the pancreas or we put in the lung and those mice do not do well in either scenario. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, many of the attributes are the same. Um, you don't need a lot of other uh, genomic alterations to occur to have a lethal lung cancer um, arise in, in the mouse from just turning on uh, KRAS in the lung. And uh, likewise with, with KRAS in, in the pancreas, using a little different genetic trick to get it to turn on. So by many criteria, they are quite similar in that they are caused by KRAS. It is sufficient. It appears necessary by all the criteria we use. And um, I, I think we're, we're learning that that model's been, been extremely helpful, but also rather narrow in that it's just been one allele. It's been the G12D allele in KRAS, mm -hmm. which is the most common mutation mm -hmm. in pancreas, not the most common in lung. Right. 
And um, we're learning all sorts of things about the potency of these different alleles, irrespective of their uh, amenability to drugging, that just the natural history of a lung cancer with a G12C is different than that with, with a, a, another RAS mutation. And, um, and I think we will soon see, I'm, I'm quite encouraged, uh, exactly the answer to your question is how addicted is a pancreas right. cancer to that oncogene? Or is it just as in colorectal where it appears to be a modifier at best and dispensable mm-hmm. in, in a lot of things? So we, you know, that's why we're in this business. It feels like the right place at the right time. Well, it's an interesting time to be there. You know, obviously... 10 years ago without RAS drugs, but now we have so many in the pipeline, and I'd be very curious to see what the response rates are. Yeah, it has felt like I was uh, sharing with a colleague that we've been wandering the desert for a few generations in pancreas cancer, and uh, it it feels really exciting to kind of see some shimmering clouds on the horizon that may be water. So we're enthusiastic about what's coming. That's a good place to be. (laughs) Now, I have to ask you this question. As a physician scientist and and a physician scientist who's attained the rank of professor, which Mm -hmm. is puts you in a smaller and smaller cohort, um, you know, people tell me that being a physician scientist in this modern ecosystem is like working in Goldman Sachs. They hire 100 people, and there's only one job at the end of the day. And the whole thing is about winnowing down to that one job. And, you know, any way you look at it, from every statistic I've seen from MSTP funding and you follow the long-term trajectories of people, I think a good chunk of those people, and you're not, you didn't do the MSTP, you did it the, right. the, other, the harder way, um, but a good chunk of MSTP people will stay in the academy, but they don't always continue to have continually funded laboratories. Yeah. Um, and it really does seem like a slog. And so I guess maybe two questions. One, if you could talk about has it changed in your career? Is it hard or easier? And then also I'm really curious for you, what was the hardest moment in your training? Was it the first, you know, fellow to faculty transition? Was it the first R01? Was it getting that first continu- continuity? Was it when the startup ran out? Right. What was the hardest moment? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I was I was speaking to a younger um, hire uh, today about this, who's more clinically focused, but my. Um, my my one of my mentors and, and friends down the hallway here, Frank McCormick, um, you know, gave me good advice early when I was thinking about you know finishing fellowship, but hadn't really done a ton of um, productive laboratory research at that point in in uh, you know during clinical fellowship where you kind of don't do anything but care for patients, um, and was thinking about going elsewhere, uh, looking for a job elsewhere or or not. And, and Frank told me, he's like, you know, you're never a hero at home, uh, but you're doing good work. Keep it up. And, and that was a really important decision in retrospect of whether I should, you know, stay at the institution where I had kind of learned the good and the bad, mm-hmm. where the bodies are buried, but also the great resources and the doors you could knock on um, and necessarily maybe take a little lower number in the startup mm-hmm. and, and maybe a little less of a footprint mm-hmm. than the you know, um, red carpet that, that would be rolled out elsewhere. This was fellow to faculty transition. Fellow to faculty, Mm -hmm. exactly. But where you, uh, were probably going to be left to your own to figure out where the men's room was, which is the good mouse house to be in and which one has pinworms and all, all these things you only learn after, um, you know, really being in an institution. I, and I chose to stay and, and was wonderfully supported by people here, um, Margaret Tempero, Alan Vanuk, and, and others who I, you know, couldn't have done any of this without. Um, that was a, a hard um, um, time because 
it's hard to make other people move on the same schedule you want to move on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, academia and institutions are kind of big and slow, and they need to be because they need to be around tomorrow. And uh, 25 or 30-year-olds with young kids and things often have exigencies that are more acute and you'd kind of need a salary or you need to know should you buy a house that was a I won't say scary time stressful time mm -hmm. about was I going to get a job or not and would it be enough to pay the rent um, the, uh, the the other transitions that were big were kind of internal promotion and external funding and those are I think always the two they, they often go hand in hand and, and I, I got pretty lucky on an early R01 that I got before my K08 uh, ran out, which mm -hmm. was really um, um, took a lot of pressure off mm -hmm. that kind of first big grant. And I, um, it, I, I, I spoke to someone in that study section now, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, 10 years ago. And um, this reviewer would obviously never divulge anything discussed, but um, you know the you don't have to have a perfect score as a new investigator to survive mm -hmm. you got to be good enough to get the grant and, and it is easier to get that first grant with the new investigator status and um and it is a a series of you know making it below the pay line and you don't get extra money for a one percent grant mm, I see. so um mm. i learned early to uh to just keep resubmitting things if you thought it was work you wanted to do for five years mm. and if it got to the point where you didn't want to do the work even if the grant was funded move on because you know that's also not great to have a grant with a bunch of a body of work that you've been spent two and a half years resubmitting and fighting with mm -hmm. people about and you actually don't even want to do it anymore i see um some people advise to take the money and then do what you want instead yeah you yeah don't like that. that well i mean i i've had one project mm -hmm. with a, another non-nih uh sponsor where where that was the case and um it it, it winds up being more painful, you know, trying to write progress reports and be, you know, less than transparent about what you're actually doing and trying to match it to the original aims and telling this story. It ends up being kind of more trouble than it's worth. And um, you don't want to have that bureaucratic uh, downer being, you know, the driving force of what you do. A lot of what you do as a PI that you don't do as a fellow or a postdoc is is really, you know, all these progress reports and all this. And it's if it's actually about stuff you care about and you're proud of the result and you want to keep doing it, it it, it gets easier um, than trying to fit this round peg into a square hole that you proposed three years ago and don't actually even want to do anymore. Um yeah, so, so I've been, uh, the, the internal promotion, I, I now have the uh, privilege and duty of, of helping with the letter writing for internal medicine candidates, and I ha that was a huge black box, and it, it, it went well for me for reasons I did, never really fully understood. Now I understand them being on the letter writing side, but that's one thing that I think we could do better, kind of telling our junior faculty, you know, physician scientists or other you know, what is expected of them? You know, we, we, we want you to be happy. We want you to do well. But what are the actual boxes that one needs to check to live a life in academia? And those are not just published cell papers or get tons of grants. Those have to do with citizenship and teaching and, mm -hmm. and things that it's easy to ignore um, 
and actually not very hard to accommodate if you know about them. You just kind of, you know, so, so that's one thing I, I would have done differently if I had known. But I would say those early kind of instructor to assistant professor, those are by far the most stressful times and everyone has those stresses and everyone survives in one way or another, right? <laughs> well, I guess uh, there's survivor bias there as well. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that's well put. And I think, um, I guess I'm curious if you feel like, uh, do you, would, would, would you say that, I mean, how much of it is, is the skill really being clear about the science and how much of the skill is the skill of how to present yeah. your thoughts? No, that's a huge question. And, and that is, um, it is good, you know, all things being equal to have, productive thoughts rather than distracted thoughts. But I that first grant I got, so I went about four years with my lab with one R01, um, which my mentor, everyone told me, oh, that's great, Eric, you know, you're doing great. You have an R01. And I'm like, yeah, but it, it doesn't really pay very much right. and I'm burning all this money and I don't know how this ball's gonna stay in the air. Right. And then I got asked uh, to be on a, a standing study section and I had to read my first pile of nine or 11 R01 submissions, okay. you know, which is your typical workload uh, in study section. And I was like, gosh, this is a lot, you know, because as you know, the application itself is 200 pages sure. often, you know, 180 of which are nonsense and, right. you know, just budgetary things that you can't understand even if you try. So just learning how to review a grant even just what page to read took, you know, a, a substantial amount of time. But once I was um, on that committee, my first review, you know, took me a week. My, by the, that, the, the first review cycle, I probably dedicated easily 40 hours to reading these eight or nine mm -hmm. grants. It just took a huge amount of time. And then um, I went to the study section and you have to present these grants to your peers in a way that they can understand and, um, and why you like it or you didn't. And I realized I didn't know what I thought about these grants. I had just read them and mm -hmm. tried to kind of memorize part of them or recite their big points. But I realized that um, if I couldn't recite it after reading it for 40 hours, there's either something wrong with me or something wrong with, with the, the proposal. And that became my, you know, I, it's every three months, as you know, so I did this every four or five months, and I got to see the difference between a well-written grant and a poorly written grant. Mm, interesting. And it is, uh, I'm, the science that emanates from these is largely equivalent, but uh, people who write clearly are extremely effective in getting their grants funded mm. because... You know, there's a guy like me who's, you know, yeah. can read. I'm fairly literate. But I don't want to beat out of you what your thoughts are when you're not even here. You right. know, I'm reading this this thing you submitted to me. So I, I very soon after that got pretty formulaic about my grants. I had, I have rules that must be followed. And um, so far, so good with that. You know, it's really well put. <laughs> you know, the way you frame it is that it's sort of like a, uh, a memorability kind of thing, totally. too. Right, because totally. you're right. The person's going to be reading a stack of these things. Why are you punishing this nice person? <laughs> you're not, you're not going to know who they are. They're going to know who you are. Right. And why make it hard for them? Yeah. So I, may I go over the rules yeah, quickly? Please. Okay, yeah, yeah. so oh, here yeah. are the rules of um, a, an R01 because a listener may actually submit one that I read. So this is what I would love to see. Yeah. 
no walls of text. That is the first rule. So if you, if you give me a wall of text, I feel intimidated and depressed. You mean no page break, no uh, paragraph breaks on no the page? Indentations, no indentations, right no yeah. pagination, no just just text yes, from, yes. from you know Beginning stem to, to stern. Right. Um, and so what does that mean? What's a lot of text, what's not? Okay, so we need another rule. One graphic table or figure on every page, on including every page. the AIMS page, excluding the references. I don't put any figures sure. in the references. So every page has a picture, yeah. okay? I'm just a normal guy. I like pictures. Of Everyone course, likes everyone pictures. Does, yeah. So give me at least one picture, even if it's a picture of you injecting a mouse with cells or something. Just break it up. Give me a picture. And... Um, and you know lists and bullets like aims are called aims because they're someone wants to know what you actually hope to achieve i don't want to explore i don't want to understand i don't want to discover because i don't know when we're done understanding right. or exploring right. i want to know in an aim when it will start when it will be done and how i'll know it's done mm. so those are the three rules no wall of text which is actually a negative rule uh, positive is a picture on every page and aims that have discernible words in them that are not discovering or understanding or exploring. I, I don't want to do any of these things in aims. I want to define, um, I want to demonstrate that X is better than Y. I want to define the factor that gets the signal from A to B. Um, I, I Precise think active verbs. Are what active you want to do. Yeah. speaking, and um, I think that's really helpful for reviewers to be able to advocate for you mm -hmm. in that room because she can, when she's reviewing this grant, she can say, "Hey, Dr. Smith wants to actually define, you know, figure out what sits between kinase A and transcription factor B because we don't know that, and she's shown that we don't know that, and this is how she's going to figure it out, and mm -hmm. I think it's worth knowing. So let's fund this grant." If, if, on the other hand, the reviewer has to say, well, she's really bright and she wants to understand this pathway in a way that's deeper, no one in the room can object to that, but right. it's not really inspiring. I right. mean, I want this woman to understand things too, but why do I need to pay for it if I'm in the grant review room? Right. No, I think, I mean, that's real. those are brilliant rules. And I think what's interesting to me is that two out of the three rules are about the visual display of that's information. It. It's just plug, just just don't break those rules right. and you're doing okay. Yeah. You're not doing great. <laughs> and, and the third rule I think is a very useful rule too, which is that, you know, memorability also means that speci often specific details make things memorable in the mind. And if you're just exploring all the time and elucidating and these kind of vague words that mean you're just going to run a bunch of studies, but you're not telling me exactly what you're running, Yeah. you know, and it's also very interesting because, you know, I, I have never formulated grant rules because I, you know, I don't have, uh, no one's going to come to me for that. But um, I tell people the same thing about publications and how you mm -hmm. submit papers. And I say, you know, the BMJ has done something interesting. You can actually look at anyone's submission. They have a, like any paper that's published, you can look at all the history from the original submission to, and sometimes I go through and I look and I say like, look at this person's, like the letterhead is nice. The letter is well-written. It actually explains in like two sentences why this would be good for the BMJ. And, and look at how they format the response to the reviewers. It's like thoughtful and yep. visually nice. And people like that because people don't want to be working hard. Uh, you that's know. another huge thing. Exactly. The response to reviewers, you get those in grants too. I agree is, is um, having just compassion for your reader right. and um, you know, really wanting her to understand what you want to do. 
and assuming good intentions. These are good people. They're doing this for free or right. $172 or whatever you get for a day. And, um, you know, they, they really do want good work to be done and just don't punish them with things that they can't understand. The thing with the action words versus the, the mm -hmm. fluffy words is that um, it really is, uh, I think, human nature that unless you understand a thing well enough to explain it to a peer, I feel a little bit stupid. I'm like, I feel kind of stupid. I don't know what she's going to do, but it was my job mm. to know what she's going to do. And, and I kind of don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of a little bit angry that I look stupid in front of my peers because she didn't tell me what she wants to do in this grant. Mm -hmm. So you got to know these are humans reading these things and um, they have all of the same emotions you do. So I, I think that's been helpful. So that the law is a, I apologize for the convolution here, but it is, um, it took me a while to understand that writing grants is not about showing off or proving competency. It is about communicating. That's really great. And, uh, and, and you don't learn that till you have to be on the other side of it, or at least I didn't. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that that's, that's such a great point and a great perspective. I think people find that really interesting. There's another topic I wanted to ask you about. Yes. Okay. And I'm not going to name names, but it's 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 because it's, it's not any one person. But you know, not a week goes by these days. It feels. And by the way, I I'll put an asterisk here. Um, I'm actually curious about this question. I'm trying to empirically look at it to see if it's true. But the point I'm going to say is that uh, it feels like more hematologists, oncologists, people in our profession, academics, are moving to the industry, mm -hmm. biopharmaceutical industry. So I'm, we're studying right now to see is it is in fact empirically true or does it just feel that way because you know people are on LinkedIn and Twitter and you see where they're going more often than right. you used to. But we're, st we're going to study it formally to see if that's true. But I feel as if it might be true. Okay. Um, I guess my question is, you know, why? Yeah. I, I have the same questions. I, I try to do some, some journaling every morning, and that was actually my topic this morning, is to, like, where are people uh, going and, and what are they doing? And, and, and the other part of that, which maybe will be part of your study, I hope, is who's winning? I mean, is industry getting the good ones, quote unquote, or are oh, they getting the, you know, the, um, the ones who, who don't want to do this anymore? And another splice slice of your question is, who's leaving? It is, is it the premier clinical investigator Correct. who can run a trial and get it done under budget and on time? Or is it the blue sky scientist right. who's studying genome organization in some way that it's not clear to anyone how this is going to become a piece of chemical matter in a bottle for, you know, $20,000 a month? Um, I, I share your impression that I think they, we are losing people more quickly. Um, I can't tell if it's a COVID thing or if there, there, there appears to be no ability to counterattack from academia, mm -hmm. you know, that we're just kind of, you know, without getting political, it seems that we are overly focused on, you know, internal mask policies and how many, you know, who the elevator, yes, and not in the hallway. And I, it just feels like academia has, in some cases, appropriately due to COVID, kind of lost focus on what's important here, mm -hmm. which is growing and uh, retaining good people. And that, you know, getting mired in, in some of these more um, socially important, but distracting, mm -hmm. um, 
efforts has consequences. And I think one of those consequences is not supporting people as much as maybe we otherwise could uh, internally in academia. And it's, it's hard to, to counteract that with individuals. That, that's kind of institutional. And I, I don't think that we're any worse than anywhere else, but I do get that impression from a lot of people, that people come to work and there's all these you know, guidelines and trainings and sensitivities and things, and, and they, I think they'd rather just do their work and kind of not get involved in a political cause or a social improvement project while they're studying you know, chromothripsis. <laughs> and um, so, so I think that's kind of gone full circle, where the, you know, the liberal social politics have, have kind of maybe started to be a bug rather than a feature, mm, maybe. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a factor. Um, and you know, the, the money continues to diverge, right? Mm -hmm. um, everyone needs more money than they used to just to buy the same carton of milk. And uh, salaries are not, you know, there's, there's always been a disparity, but mm -hmm. that disparity is increasing, you know, where, where pharma is able to go to the moon with respect to uh, salaries and, and academia hasn't been able to counter on that front either. I guess I'm interested in your question, though, and your thoughts on, you know, do you think this is a larger commentary in that we're less curious as a society or as doctors in general, are we, are we beginning to assume the mantle of, you know, we just work here, it's our job to not screw things up and, you know, make sure they're on a stat and if their cholesterol is X, are we basically paving the way for the robotization of our profession or is there, you know, do you, do you see that? Do you know what oh, I'm asking? Yeah. Oh, I think, I, I, I guess I, I've really enjoyed listening to you because I feel like my thinking has been kind of along a lot of the same lines that you're pursuing. I mean, one of the avenues you're pursuing is that, um, you know, we have to acknowledge that oftentimes people are moving to a job that pays more, yeah. both in base salary and, and they're paid some in stock, which of course has tax implications that are pretty favorable. Yep. We're paid the old fashioned way where yep. the tax man takes a lot of it, especially in this, especially in this place. In this state, yeah. In this state. Um, so of course that's one thing. And, and another thing might be flexibility because even though as a lab scientist and, you know, I do epidemiology research, we have a lot of flexibility on that side, but when you wear your clinical hat, the flexibility goes very low. And, and lower every day. And lower every day. Yeah. And I mean... I don't know, somebody once asked me like, oh, well, when you're sick, who covers your clinic? And I was like, I've been attending for seven years. There's no such thing as being sick. I mean, right. who could cover your clinic? Right. These people want to know your opinion. They don't want to know anyone. I mean, I can't even imagine how somebody could even do such a thing in our profession because right. uh, you know, we're not doing sort of a, I don't know, maybe a different type of specialty one could substitute. Yeah, wasn't that odd? You know, I, I think, you know, we were all interns once. It, it never occurred to me. I mean, I went to work, you know, frankly, viremic oh, many times, you know, and I, I, um, and I, and now that's, you know, tantamount to kind of a, a war crime, you know, yeah. doing that now Murder, yeah. would be a, and I wouldn't do it and I don't condone anyone doing it, Correct. but, um, it, it hadn't occurred to me to, to stay home cause I had a cold, um, and, um, now one should and does. And so some of those are for the better, right. I guess the, what I'm worried about is the, um, as we do adhere to guidelines more and we do improve things uh, for the population as a whole, are we, um, 
are we deselecting the individuals who want to kind of do things differently and and um, and and show a, a different way of doing it? And yeah. you know, it's some of this is kind of existential in nature, but. I'm not sure how much creative research you're going to get emanating from people who are the best at running a clinic on time and hitting an RVU Correct. goal and adhering to, you know, the work hours regulations. So I, I, it's not, you know, it was tougher when I was a kid, but um, you do select for excellence in different ways. Yeah. You know, these people are excellent at getting lots of RVUs, getting through patients quickly, and that might not be the same kind of person who you know, discovers that, you know, the, the, you know, the genes and viruses that cause cancer have a human origin. I mean, that's a very profound thought that you might not occur to you mm -hmm. if you're, if you're trying to make an RVU limit. For sort of a Varmus work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Varmus exactly. today would, but I mean, to push on what you're saying, I would say that at least for one phenotype of people who are leaving, which I think is a pretty big phenotype, which is the clinical trialist academic. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons they're leaving is, and this is different than even when I started my fellowship, is that the job description that we have created at a university, and not just our, any university, and the job description at pharma are increasingly the same. Yeah. Like you work here, uh, maybe 60% of the patients you're gonna see, you're putting on trial. Yep. And you're in, and then half your day is in Zoom meetings with one sponsor, the other sponsor, steering committees, this kind of stuff. And you start to think to yourself, you feel like the, the nurse practitioner yep. for the pharmaceutical company, right. seeing the patient on their behalf, yep. you switch on the other side, you're gonna get paid more, you're still gonna design and talk. Same about, Zoom meeting. Same Zoom you're, meeting. You're just on the other end of it. <laughs> exactly, same Zoom meetings, yep. and then somebody else is gonna see the patient for yeah. you, probably the person you trained. Right. And, you're, you know, and I think that what the academy, and whenever I listen to people talk, I think exactly what you're saying, which is that curiosity component, and I suspect that that's what keep motivates you. That's what like motivate like you know why do I stay? Because how can I do the kind of research I want to do in any other environment? Right. No one will allow me. And you similar. You're doing really sort of blue skies, fundamentally trying to understand this thing that's been there for thousands and thousands of years mm -hmm. in a way that no one has ever understood it. And yes, the company might allow you to do some of that, but insofar as it's marketable and uh, products in hand. Right. Um, but for a lot of people, the university cheats the faculty by not allowing them to have that curiosity part of their career because right. they extract every hour out of them for yeah. see more patients, more RVU, run more trial, put more of your percent on. And I think that whenever I listen to some of the people say how to fix it, all their fixes are just going to make the problem worse because they just make the job description even more the same. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we, as you know, well, we, we lose routinely our, our clinical research coordinators to industry because there's a lot of industry in San Francisco. We do a pretty good job of training them. And then industry's like, hey, these people know a lot about colon cancer. Let's uh, have them develop our drug in colon cancer, pay them five times as much. And that's a career. It is, um, you know, we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing with faculty, as you say, that, well, if this is just a pipeline, let's just move up the pipeline. And, and that is, um, you know, that is concerning. I, I do think that physicians have been academic physicians, and I'll say more physician scientists, lab-based people. It still is true that if I do largely the same job of many colleagues in anatomy and biophysics, our jobs get R1s. That's most of what my job is. I do get paid more than those people do. And I certainly get paid more than my professors when I went to Cal who do very similar research as to what I do. Um, and so we do want it a little bit both ways. Mm -hmm. Like we, we want the relatively higher salary than the kind of similar work. Mm -hmm. So one argument would be, well, I don't care if you have an MD, why are you making more than a PhD who has just as many grants as you do? Mm -hmm. um, on the same side, um, there is that 
perceived um, ability to, to make a lot of revenue for the medical system, and that somehow justifies this. Yet, you know, we have clinical people who are not very clinically productive, for example. We have, you know, f laboratory people who don't produce a lot of grants. And, and so there is some inefficiencies in the system that I think do um, make the economics difficult for the university because we, do, we don't want to be firing people because they don't get their grant renewed on one cycle. That that's, makes it tough to have innovative ideas or controversial thought. At the same time, we've left the era where, you know, you're endowed for life with a salary to think deep thoughts and produce nothing for 40 years. That I think that's gone. Um, so we're, we're trying to find a new sustainable model. And I, um, I, I don't know what that is. It, it's, it is hard for the, for the physician scientist. I know that's a lot of your listener group is this people at the intersection here. And, um, you know, it becomes difficult to, uh, it, again, if you're the grantor, you're the NIH, you're the NSF, you're the foundation of whatever, um, you know, if, 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 the, if the goal of that foundation is to get Research X performed, one could say, well, the product is the research. Why are we paying more for this guy's salary than this female PhD scientist who does largely equivalent work? You know, and we pay her 70%. So let's, you know, so that hasn't crept in. I don't think it should. I think people, you know, review grants largely by the people and not their salaries, mm -hmm. which is good. But I am worried that we're going to start kind of, you know, kind of um, debating um, salaries uh, in, in different ways. And in, in industry's forcing that, I All think, right. in a lot of ways. You know, that's really interesting. Um, I, I would, I want to ask you about, reproducibility because I think it's yeah. so interesting and there's some recent work this last year on the topic and then and then that might maybe that'll take us to the to the time but I guess mm -hmm. um um you know maybe there's two parts to this one part is um I sometimes feel like in academics there's incentives for you to do a lot of your own work um but if you see somebody else in your space or your field publish something and you read the paper and you find like oh that looks a little problematic and that lo looks a little problematic that there's actually not much of an incentive for you to speak up about that. No. Um, you run the risk of offending them or insulting them, and they could be on the study section, and you, they could be your reviewer, and they right. might not be unhappy with you. And so we're all kind of producing our own content, and you know we don't have as much incentive to police, uh, or not police, but at least look at and critically evaluate other people's content. Um, and at the same time, I saw recently, the at least in the basic science space in cancer biology, they've completed their reproducibility project run by this guy, Brian Nozick, from yep. uh, Virginia. And, um, you know, I don't know, obviously no two experiments are exactly the same. And so there's always going to be some variability. Um, but this project was nice in the sense that they actually spoke to the original investigators. They had the original investigators vet the replication protocol. Do you agree? And if they make substitutions and reagents that they thought to feel like those substitutions are not going to change trivial. the result, they're yeah. trivial. Yep. Right. And even under those conditions, it looked like something like, you know, only 20 to 50% could be reproduced. And this is the creme de la creme of the biomedical literature. These are the top right. papers. And so I guess I wonder um, how you think about this in your own science, because, you know, you're somebody who I, I know you care about the truth. And so you don't want to be misled and mislead yourself, too, and spend your time. At the same time, there's under so much pressure to be the person who's a discoverer, to always be finding yep. something new. 
and that pressure is just naturally going to lead to this problem. Mm-hmm. How do you think about this as a basic scientist? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a definite, you have a different view kind of on this side of the, the wall is, is that there, there are the factors you inter-lab, inter-lab meeting between two different laboratories. There's also the kind of intra-lab uh, dynamic. It's that, you know, I, I do go in the lab and I actually did some pipetting um, a month ago or a couple weeks ago. But, you know, most of the work is not done by the PI, the, the actual pipetting. And the, um, you know, with, with any lab with more than, you know, three or four people, it, it soon becomes impossible to mm. really, Police you everybody. know, fact check yeah. every, um, a, you know, every image that is, you know, downloaded from the server and renamed the file and the bands. So it, it, it just becomes practically very difficult to, to check everything. And I think most PIs handle that with just kind of orthogonal trust metrics, mm. like, you know, do, do, I don't, when I, people apply, I, I'm like, oh, well, she did this paper. Was that a good paper? I don't ask anything about their work. I read their work, and I, I just ask confidentially, can we do a phone call off record? Is there anything that would ever worry you about this person? Mm-hmm. I don't care about their science. I don't care about their work ethic. I just care about their ethics. Yeah. Right. yeah, And that really is is a bit of due diligence it's in no weird there, there's no incentive for that person to say yeah she's a horrible person and cheats on her taxes but i think a lot of us uh, work on that level it, it is it, it's also i look at it from the side of when i see a cool paper and i really want to say this is a great new model system i don't really care about their question but i want to use it to answer this question let's build it up in the lab and get this to work it's extremely difficult just to get the thing to work, mm-hmm, right? And right. especially if you were doing this multiple times, I, I just I, I worry about the denominator rather than the numerator of, of how, what is this number of reproducibility? It's clearly true and it must be true just because of the incentives we just spoke about. You don't get promoted for not publishing papers or for telling other people mm-hmm. that their work is garbage. You get promoted for publishing papers. So anything that has a uni, unilateral... Um, incentive is going to produce um, an unfortunate amount of less than fully reproducible stuff. I'm not sure what to do about it other than having the um, consequences of unreproducibility be less than full and total death, <laughs> right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you want people to self-police, right. you need to build your enemy a golden bridge, is right. what Lao Tzu said, right? So if the enemy is non-reproducibility, mm-hmm. Don't trap them in a career-ending, you right. know, quagmire by saying, "Yeah, there's some problems with this Western blot." Give them a way to actually make it right. And so, I think that is one positive step we could take as a community is to have a way of actually being able to say, "I'm, I'm sorry, this got away from me. I think it's an error," and not having it be a kind of mark of shame right. for the rest of your career. So I think that's one positive thing we could do. What do you think? No, I think that's a great idea. I mean, I think that many people are averse to retractions, corrections, yeah. just because they don't want it under their name. Right. And maybe it doesn't have to be right. you know, called could, so could punitively. We, yeah, could we relabel that or have a more public forum where it's stuff where the, the postdoc and the PI get to kind of you know do a verbal explanation of what went on here or something that's less punitive than a, a mark of shame right. that they have and to wear. And then revise the manuscript. Um, yeah. 
but you know, you, I guess I think it's a really, it was a really excellent point. But I mean, I want to just say, like, separate two things you mentioned. I mean, one of the problems you mentioned, that the first problem that I didn't bring up, which I think you're right, is that you know, there's a tiny fraction of, um, I think, unscrupulous actors, and they're they could be at any level, from, totally, from attending to like the person who spends Janitors the summer there. To, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And and um, and I'll tell you a little story off offside. Um, Many years ago, somebody uh, wanted to work with me on a project, and you know, like you, I don't have a great way to detect everyone. I, I give them something, and they have to collect all this data, and it's like a, a voluminous task. And right. then eventually, we analyze the data. But the things I always do is like I spend a lot of time with like table one and the figures to just make sure in my mind that I cannot find anything like this. All makes sense, right? But you know, I, I was working with this person, and then I just saw like, oh, well, if this number is this number, that number can't be that number. This is this. That just can't be that. Right. And so then I said, you know, I found a few things that are contradictory. You mind do one more pass and check the data, and then they sent it back to me, and it had the same things. Yeah. And then I said, you know what? Send me the spreadsheet, and I start, you know, start to get yeah. into it. And yeah. then as you get into it, you just see it's sort of a house of cards. It starts to collapse. Right. And um, so I had a really bad feeling about this, but this is some person who was like quite productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then many months later, and I almost felt guilty about it. Somebody asked me, you know, this person that, you know, you know, um, they want to work with me. What do you think about it? And I just said, you know, I, I, I almost feel guilty saying this, but like, I have a bad feeling because of this problem. And this person was like, well, you know, I don't know, maybe you're overreacting. And, uh, then like a year and a half later, this person called me and said that you were, yeah, exact same thing happened. And People don't change like that. And it reminds me of like that Stephen Glass, the reporter who kind of fabricated yeah, stories. The whole, uh, and Jonah Lehrer made up the quotes about Bob Dylan. Yeah, that whole Glass thing has yeah. its own name. Like Shattered the, Glass. Shattered the, Glass. The movie. Yes, yes exactly. A brilliant movie. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that's a fraction. Like the, and I think that Neil Potty and his like cancer stuff and exactly. like the early part. I mean, that's a fraction. But I think what you're talking about is like the, that's just the tip of the reproducibility problem. Right. And this huge chunk of it is just honest people, you know being seduced by the pressures, et yeah. cetera. And there needs to be, like, we can't give everyone the same death penalty. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, that's in the Twitter sphere and everything like that, that there needs to be, if someone apologizes, it should be on the menu to say, we forgive you, or, you know, yeah. this happens, instead of just, you know, being uh, banished to, you know, the outer rings of the universe <laughs> forever. Um, and, and I think we have to do better as a society but i think as scientists we could do better in in being more proactive and kind of welcoming people back who have screwed up and i think we all screw up all the time and mostly it doesn't blow up but um you know clinically that happens i think it's a shame you know i think clinically we would be very concerned if we saw errors in privacy or drug dosage and you know being um, chastised for bringing those up, you would want the person to learn or to fix the system that produced those things. And I, I think science needs to be looked at it that way. If you want change to occur, you can't, you know, exterminate the person who brings up the change or the person who made the mistake in the first place. You know, you're 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 both a thoughtful scientist and also a thoughtful clinician because the case you presented was really intriguing. Patient, a case about a patient, and um, I don't know if I were to summarize it, it was sort of a case of. Um, you know, how, how do we as oncologists in those moments and diseases where the, that the prognosis is dire, if we were to do everything and not do everything, and then the patient come in and says, you know what, I just, I don't want to do this. And I think in your case, and tell me if I'm wrong, the per I mean, you were, you worried a little bit about, you know, are they, are they depressed? Are they in the right mental state? Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I, th I spent a lot of time thinking about it because, you know, part of me says, um, 
I always read these studies into like, oh, you know, women with breast cancer who report being happier are uh, like much better, have yeah. much better survival. Do twice as well, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, well, you know, that part of that is maybe your attitude, but the other part of it might be like when the TNF alpha is pumping in your veins yeah. from like a rip roaring metastatic disease. Or the brain mets don't make you all that cheery. Yeah, yeah. or the brain mets, yeah, right. You have worse <laughs> disease, which is why right. you're not, yeah, right. So it's the disease driving the happiness and not the other way around. Um, so I, I don't know. I wonder how you how are you grappling yeah, with that? that? What do you think? What have you? Yeah, you know you that case was uh, it was briefly it was a colon cancer case, metastatic disease, first line therapy to which the patient was responding, mm -hmm. and actually just kind of was like I don't want to I want to take my ball and go home and don't want to play anymore, which is absolutely a patient's right. Okay. And so I, I guess for me, uh, we have good treatments for colon cancer, and these patients can live a couple years, and they never live forever, right. like like none of us do. And so that it was really, you know, what is my job as an oncologist? You know, I can't pretend I never learned what depression was. I mean, I took the MCATs, I took the boards. I know you ask questions about are you depressed, and if they say yes, they're depressed, mm -hmm. okay, and they and they might not be making the best decisions from that um, viewpoint. So I thought um, it was incumbent on me to at least explore that, and I realized that I didn't really know how to convince myself I had either treated the depression adequately that he could make the decision properly, or do we just make bad decisions with lethal consequences all the time, and that's just within a patient's rights, which it often probably is. Uh, it, it rose a lot of, um, uh, you know, a lot of questions for me about, you know, how much do we need to, you know, mentally uh, prepare the, the mental health of our patients to make the best uh, decisions about their physical health? And I really don't, I don't know the answer to that, but, um, as you do this more and more and you become more confident that I know what to do medically, you realize more and more that you're not really treating the whole patient unless you're, you're understanding what they're going through. Mm. And um, it's just an area I want to learn more, as I said in that lecture, and, and how we can study this kind of demoralization, depression spectrum in cancer. And it is so categorically different than, you know, the... I'm depressed because, you know, someone's mean to me. You have a life-ending malignancy, and we know you're going to die of it, and we also have a treatment for it for now, mm -hmm. and I don't know what the right answer to that is. It's, it's a really, in this point in my career, it's something I'm being more attuned to or trying to. You know, I think that that's uh, really well put. And um, I mean, I think that's the beauty of oncology is that you're always kind of finding these puzzles yeah. at the intersection of humanity and, and death and yeah. life and medicine and that, uh, you know, even decades into your career, you find a new puzzle. I mean, my kids talk to me about that. They're like, how can you, you know, all your patients die? Like, they don't all die, first of all. And second yeah. of all, I mean, we as a society just don't get to talk about dying ever, Yeah. right? We, we can't talk about it with our wives or our parents or our kids or... Um, and, and yet we get to have those conversations, and it really is this kind of ancient privilege that very few people get to have. Even primary care doctors don't really get to do this as much as we do. It's a very, for certain types of people like us, maybe, it. I think we, we look at it more as a privilege than a burden. Mm, I totally agree, and I'll come back to that in a second. But um, the thing it reminded me of is like, I don't know, sometimes I feel like you're always kind of figuring out how much of the spectrum do you want to be on the I present the patient the risks and I present the options and I, you know, inform them and let's see what they decide for themselves. 
versus I make a recommendation for a patient. I counsel a patient. I get to know who they are and I say, for yeah. you, for the kind of person you are, this is you know what I would recommend. And for me, I don't know, many years ago, I was taking care of somebody, like a 20-year-old person with like stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. And you know, obviously they're in a lot of pain. But this is Hodgkin's, and so you know, cure rates are high. And I was in Oregon at the time, and the person asked for a referral to the Death with Dignity program. Uh. And I was like, Death with Dignity, which is the program where yeah, the, if two doctors agree that there's a limited life expectancy, they'll give them pills to take home and right. they can use them. Phenobarb and, yeah. and fentanyl or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and uh, oh, I had a lot of moral anguish. And, yeah. and, and, and ultimately, um, maybe people will disagree with me, but I felt like it's not my role to make that recommendation just right. yet. And I spent a long time to try to pinpoint what was it about ABVD that was so unpalatable or that right. like, you know, and then ultimately, I, you know, we didn't make the referral, the patient went through with treatment, but it was, um, it was that moment where, you know, every once in a while, sometimes a trainee who feels to me like they got too many consults, they're hurried, they say, well, this person doesn't want any treatment at all. So we just sign them off, cross right. them off the list. And I say, don't hold go, on. So, hold, yeah. on. hold on, hold yeah. on, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is, yeah, and exactly. When you're rounding and there's 12 consults, you're like, well, this guy isn't buying what I'm selling, so I'm, right. I, I can go sell it elsewhere. And that is um, a survival skill. At the same time, you know, we uh, we do need um, we do need to understand the mental state. I, I don't know what a quote correct mental state to be in is, right. and um, it, it is, you know, it is telling though in your ABVD Hodgkin's case, you know that. Um, option would not be available were the diagnosis you know something else you know osteoarthritis right Correct. so um Correct. there is some to me there feels like some um responsibility we the reason this law is for people with serious diseases is because they do get the input of people who talk about them seriously so i think part of that serious discussion really does try and get them to, to be in the spectrum of, of treatment. At the same time, you know, we all have people with religious beliefs who refuse, you know, infusions right. and therefore can't get a life-saving surgery because the surgeon won't do it without this ability. And I mean, that feels like it's just, that's their choice. Mm -hmm. It's been their choice for many years. We don't classify people with religious beliefs as, as mentally, um, inappropriate um and and so it all feels like a spectrum of interesting human behavior just yeah. fun to try to figure it out you're right and i think that that's the thing about it is that um maybe you're never good at it but you're always trying to be better yeah exactly <laughs> and that is something that i you know we talked a little about career trajectory today and you know that's something i'm i'm really finding gratitude in that that you know this is a career that you there's a lot there Mm -hmm. Right. You can keep going deeper and there's more and more uh, to learn. That's really well said. Um, Eric Collison, thank you so much for your time. This is a real pleasure to get to talk to you about these topics. Uh, people should uh, read your papers. I think they're very interesting. The heart of pancreas cancer, molecular biology. Um, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me.